Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you and we cherish you and we adore you. You are the object of our affection and the greatest need of the human heart and the greatest need of every heart in this room and building and on this planet is that we see you for who you are. That the eyes of our hearts recognize your absolute beauty and majesty and that in that recognition we embrace you as our all-satisfying treasure. And so what I'm asking from you today, Father, is that you would, in the opening of this word, use your servant here, the hearts of your people, to mediate the great reality of who you are so that it becomes a treasure and a joy for every person in this room. That's my prayer, Father, and I ask that you would do it today. And I have great confidence that you can and will because of who you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Today is a uh, special day because we are at a part in the beginning of the book of Colossians, which I have literally been waiting for I would say years, but you guys would recognize that's probably a problem because we haven't been around for years. Uh, um, but I've, I've been waiting for this since the very beginning, praying about how and where we would start as a church body um, in the Word and figuring out what it would look like for us to begin in the Word. One thing was clear to me that this book, out of all the books that are in the Bible, um, is the book that speaks most prominently and most... Um, powerfully to the mission and purpose of this church, to what this church is called to be and do. Of all the books in the Bible, this book was that for me. And one of the reasons why is because in Colossians 1, for five verses, um, there is something so captivating and so powerful that it caused me to be immediately convinced that this is the book that we need to be in. And that's where we are today. Um, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 are one of the highest points in scripture. They are, uh, it is due to its structure and due to its unique attributes, it is referred to often as the Christ hymn. There are actually two Christ hymns in scripture. There's one in Philippians 2 and there's one in Colossians 1, but this one talks about the nature and the power of Jesus Christ. And so because of its significance as a hymn and because of uh, what it meant to the early church, the ancient church, when they would read it, I would like for us to do something a little bit weird and different today. Normally I get up here and I read through a text and then we talk about it for a half an hour or so. What I would like to do is I would like to read this text with you together in a liturgical context. I would like to read it as a public and sort of collective reading and uh, to be honest, I think this is something that's lacking for many contemporary churches, um, but the reality is, is that the early church, the ancient church, was profoundly impacted by reading the scriptures together. There was something about that act that caused God to move um, and have great favor with his people in pressing the word deep into their heart, and so I would like to do that today. Um, and uh, it might, I'll be honest, feel a little bit weird. It might be awkward at parts because this text is interesting in the way that it's got words set up. Um, but uh, I think what's most important here is that as we're reading as a church, that you ask God to open your hearts 
to the reality that's being presented here. That you would ask him to, to drive those things deep down into your soul so that you love them and cherish them. And so I would like to read this text as a church together today. Ultimately, the most important thing is that God speaks to us through it and that we hear him. And uh, that's what liturgy is all about. So we're going to put the verse, verses on the screen here. And then what I'll do is I'll lead and uh, you guys just follow along. And if you find yourself getting off the beaten path, join in on a word that you uh, pick. All right, ready? <laughs> here we go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were job guys that was awesome that was amazing there wasn't a single awkward part in that whole thing congratulations all right um i mentioned that this christ hymn was one of the high points of scripture and some of you guys might be saying wait a second there are low points in scripture it's the bible it's god's word and so let me um let me clarify <clears throat> in the mountain range of biblical truth there are peaks and there are valleys there are areas that, well, let me just say this. There are no parts of the Bible that are untrue. There's no parts that are less true than others. Um, but there are certain, purpose, certain parts of the Bible where God's purpose, God's delight, God's glory shines brightly, brighter than other places. And that isn't to say that those other places aren't necessary and important. They're very necessary. They are critical. Um, but maybe they don't speak directly to the glory of Jesus Christ. Maybe they don't speak directly to the beauty of the gospel or the power of God in salvation. And so Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is, in my opinion, one of the highest points in all of Scripture because of what it speaks about. It is talking about and engaging the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It is saying that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the universe greater than Christ Jesus. And Paul says in Philippians 3 that he would gladly lose everything this life had to offer to simply know Jesus. That's how worthy Jesus is objectively. And so for the next month, God willing, we will be saturating our hearts in this text and asking God to, like I said earlier, drive the realities of this passage deep down into our souls so that we are changed by them. And uh, the New Testament refers to, in different parts, uh, it uses a word unsearchable to talk about the riches of Christ Jesus, of knowing Christ Jesus. In Greek, it's enexik nihatos. So it's a long word in Greek. Uh, but it means essentially 
untraceable, incomprehensible. What you are reading cannot be fully explored or fully measured. We will be pondering the realities of Colossians 1, 15 through 20 for eternity, and we will not see the end of them. They are infinite truths that can never fully be compassed. So what that means, if you really think about it for a second here, is that when we read a text like this, it is though we are on the doorstep of eternity. We were on the doorstep of forever. For those who belong to Christ Jesus, <laughs> that's our future. And we get, by God's grace, to taste a little bit of it right now. So without further ado, let's, let's dive in. At the beginning of the hymn, we, we get a series of statements that claim that Christ is the source of all things. That all things exist ultimately because of Jesus. But Paul doesn't start there. The apostle doesn't start there. Instead, he recognizes that there's something critical we need to know about this passage before we talk about what Jesus has done. There's something critical we need to know because we need to know who he is first before we know what he's done. And so the purpose of this passage really is to answer a very simple question. Who is Jesus Christ, really? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? At this time, probably 30 years removed from his life and death. Who is Jesus Christ? And the Colossian church needed to know this specifically because of what was being taught there. Teachers were coming into the Colossian community and they were saying, hey, listen, <laughs> the gospel's great. The gospel's great, Jesus is great, but there's something that you need to know alongside that. There's something that you need to believe and love and desire alongside of that. And we'll get to some of that next week, actually. Um, but the details of the Colossian heresy, we don't know a lot of them. What we do know is that it claimed that the gospel was insufficient, that the gospel of Jesus Christ couldn't actually do what Paul said it could do. And they would say that Jesus is is important. Absolutely, sure, he's important, but other things are needed alongside Jesus to help you be more righteous, more holy, to, to, to know God better. And so the question facing the Colossian church was, was really simple. It was this. It was, is Jesus Christ insufficient? Is Jesus lacking? Paul's answer is very clear. No not at all. He is not lacking. If you think the gospel is insufficient, then you really don't know the gospel. And if you think Jesus Christ is lacking, then you don't know Jesus. So at the very start of this hymn, Paul is dedicated to answering the question, who is Christ? And he starts with something amazing. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by those words? He is the image. This first word, we think about it, and you've been steeped a little bit in the Bible. You might go all the way back to Genesis and say, this might be a reference to Christ's relationship with Adam. There is a connection between those two. We talked about it 
uh, I think our second or third week uh, in the scriptures together. Um, And we might think it was Adam who was a human, the first human, and he was made in God's image. He was made to bear God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And so Adam uniquely is also referred to as the son of God in Luke 3, which is a title that's almost exclusively in scriptures given to Jesus. But is this image, the image of Adam, the image of man that God gave him, is that what Paul is talking about here? And the answer would be no. He's, he's not referring to Christ's humanity specifically. The image in Colossians is actually deeper and more profound. It doesn't speak to a man. This image of the invisible God is actually far greater. Listen to this from John chapter 1. Jump around a little bit. John chapter 1, verse 14, and then we're going to go to 18. It says, And the Word, who, who is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, so what what is John saying here? He's saying that no one's seen God. God is invisible, just like Paul said. He's the invisible God. No one has ever seen God, but there is someone who has made the reality of God known. And John calls this person the Son. He refers to him as the Son from the Father. <clears throat> and that's how we know he's from the Father, is because the glory he displays isn't intrinsically his. It is a reflection from the Father. Um, and even more than that, um, he's saying that the Son is the image of the invisible God, and the Son's made God known. Now, how did he do this? How did we see his glory? Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Um, throughout the New Testament, the book of Hebrews is probably the book of he- is probably the book in the Bible that engages the reality of who the Son is the most. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So this son isn't necessarily a reflection from God. It's not that he lacks glory. It is that he is, in fact, the glory of God. He is the radiance of God, according to the author of Hebrews. And this language, he is the exact imprint, sounds an awful lot like he is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the glory of God the Father displayed. And that glory isn't just a physical brightness. It's not just a physical radiance or beauty or majesty. That glory glory is a person. That glory is the Son. But then Paul says something a little strange. He says, this image, the Son, is also the firstborn of all creation. What does he mean by that? Now, some might read it and... A lot of people actually read it this way. Um, different groups of, uh, who would call themselves Christians outside of Orthodox Christianity would read it that way. That it means in this text that Jesus is actually part of creation. They would say that the, first, the word firstborn here means that God probably created the Son 
and then the son did the creation work after that. And maybe, hypothetically, that's how this creation business went down. Now, the answer to that question is no, it didn't go down like that. We know this for many reasons. One of them is actually expressed in the next verse. Let's look at it. Verse 16. <laughs> it says, For by him, the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, what does Paul want us to walk away with after reading that about this image, about this firstborn of all creation? The main thrust of the beginning of this text is that Paul wants us to know, he is hungry for us to know, that all of created reality came into existence through this Son. The constant refrain of this passage is that everything was made. Everything that exists was made through him. John 1.3 says that without him, without the Son, was not anything made that was made. And Hebrews 1.2 says, through him, through the Son, the worlds, the cosmos, were made. There's no point in this book ever where we see the Father creating the Son or making the Son. There's none. And one of the reasons we can be so confident about this is the descriptions that we've read already of who Christ really is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the display of God's godness. That's what God's glory means. Kavod in Hebrew, doxa in Greek. It means his worth and his majesty presented and displayed, which means that if the Son came into being at any point, there was a time when God actually did not possess his own glory, which is preposterous. There's no time when God lacked his godness. He has always had the radiance of who he is. And therefore, the Son is always been. The, the answer, of course, um, about God and his godness is seen throughout Scripture. The Son's always displayed it. In fact, Paul wants us to see the connection between the deity of the Father and the Son in Colossians. Colossians 1.19, a few verses down. It says, In him, all, the Son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of God was pleased to dwell in the Son. And he continues later on in Colossians, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit, Colossians 2.9, For in him, in the Son, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Now these statements are amazing if you just consider what the implications are. The whole fullness of God dwells in the Son. There's no part of God that does not dwell in the Son. All of him dwells in the Son. Which is why Jesus in John 10.30 can say, the Father and I are one. Or why he can say to Philip and the other disciples, hours before his crucifixion, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. 
And so although there are distinctions, clear distinctions between father and son, both are God. And they aren't parts of God. Both are completely God, period. The whole deity, the whole fullness of God dwells in the Son. So back to our question again, what does he mean? What does Paul mean by firstborn? What is he trying to say? <laughs> Psalm 89, 27 actually helps point us in the right direction. It says this, this is God talking. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The term firstborn obviously can mean the first within a group, chronologically, the first to come from a group. But in ancient cultures, it actually had a much more important and significant meaning. The firstborn was the heir. He was the ruler, the Lord, with ultimate authority over whatever he was given jurisdiction over. It is a title of priority, a title of significance, and in this passage, Psalm 89 shows God giving the title to someone. He would be the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, whether this refers to David, Jesus, Israel, or all of them to some degree, one thing is clear. The most important aspect of being firstborn was possessing supreme and complete authority over whatever you were made firstborn over. Paul is saying in Colossians, the Son is the firstborn of all creation. He is the head and the Lord of all created reality. Every single atomic particle belongs to him. No exceptions. The book of Hebrews, which is engaging a very similar issue among Christians that Paul is engaging with the Colossians, <laughs> um, presents the same dialogue. And the author asks, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ really? Do you know who the Son really is? And spends the first chapter of the book of Hebrews blowing the doors off the hinges of his readers' minds by quoting God in the book of Psalms. Um, and listen to what God the Father says about this Son. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. There are two things that are crystal clear from this text. The first is this, Jesus Christ is God. Of the Son, the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is very God of very God. The fullness of the deity dwells in him bodily. He is the absolute radiance and splendor of his Father. He is 
God. And Paul wants us, wants the Colossian church and us to know it, and he wants us to feel that. He doesn't want anyone to miss that point. <laughs> the second thing, which might seem simple and obvious, but I promise you it's profound, is this. Jesus Christ is eternal. He is eternal. Jump down to verse 17 of Colossians 1. It says this, And he is before all things. The Son is before all things. He has always been there. Always. Let me say it another way. Jesus Christ never had a beginning. Everything else in the universe has a starting point. Everything else that exists has a point of origin. Jesus did not. He has always been there as the Son. The Son is absolute reality, and nothing has ever existed before Him, and nothing will exist after Him. This is what it means before all things. There isn't anything before Him. The very concept of this really collapses our reasoning faculties, because as human beings, we can only reach so far back before we need a point of beginning. We need a starting point. And we need some place to put our mental footing and say, this is the beginning. Jesus Christ doesn't have that point. He has always been. There is nothing before him. He is the before. And everything else is after him. Charles Spurgeon may have said it best. I love this quote. With God, our lives are but as the swing of the pendulum. A thousand years in his sight are passed away as a watch in the night. Millions of ages are nothing to him. He was God when as yet this sun, moon, and all these stars slept in his thoughts like unborn forest in an acorn. And he will be God when all this brief creation shall melt back to nothing as a moment's foam dissolves into the wave that bore it and is lost forever. Jesus Christ is eternal. He is eternal as he said in Revelation, I am be the beginning, I am the end. Or I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. <laughs> We're going to be singing and participating in communion in a few minutes. But the way I want to close our time together today is I want to eavesdrop with you on a conversation. I mentioned earlier that this passage, because of what it possesses, is like standing on the door doorstep of eternity and looking into forever what our future is as children of the living God, that we would be gazing into his beauty forever. And I want, I want to listen a little bit to Jesus having a conversation with his father about that forever. John 17 I want to hear what the Son says to the Father here as he's going to the cross. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed. The Son, Christ Jesus, 
had been at his father's side for eternity, enjoying the majesty and the glory of his father. But in the fullness of time, the son became flesh and blood. And he lived roughly three decades as a poor rabbi with a tunic and sandals, the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. And he lived like no other before him or no other who came after him. He had no sin. He had no rebellion. There was zero dishonoring of his father's majesty. He was perfect in every single way, displaying the glory of the only son from the father. And now in this prayer, the son faces the hour for which he was born. The reason he came, the cross. It is the singular and final atoning work of human history. On that, t- on that tree, he would pay for every single sin that his people would commit. And in this prayer, we find out why. We find out why the fullness of God in the Son became flesh and blood. We find out why he went to a cross. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is ridiculous. It is absurd. It is indescribable. And to use the word I used earlier, unsearchable. God the Father And God the Son, in the deepest, most profound love and joy in existence. How could they not be? They were experiencing the fullness of each other. All other joys that we experience in this life are small in comparison. Infinitely smaller in comparison because they are mere derivatives of that joy that they experienced. And it could have been theirs unbroken for eternity with no changes. But Jesus says something ridiculous here. He says something crazy. I desire that they may be with me. That they may be where I am to see my glory. He wants us to be with him. That's staggering to me. He's saying, I came here to get them. I want them to be with me. Now, I don't know how you look at yourself and how you consider your life, but if I'm real with you, if I'm just recognizing my own life, this should not be. It should not be at all. He is infinite. I am finite. I lack in so many ways, every way. I am insufficient. He is fully sufficient. He is lacking in nothing. I am full of sin and rebellion and dishonor God all the time. And he is perfect and pure as the driven snow, innocent of every crime. Can I be real with you? Like, I shouldn't be with him. We shouldn't be with him for a millisecond, no less eternity. This is ridiculous. How is it possible that he is inviting us into eternal love? How is it possible that he's inviting us into a never-ending, ever-increasing joy? 
And the reason I have trouble with this is because I'm looking at myself and saying, there's no way that it can happen. I'm not the reason that God loves me. He's the reason he loves me. He loved me because he loved me, period. And if you're a believer, you need to hear this. God's love for you never had a beginning. There was never a time when it came into being. He has always loved you. And not because of anything you've brought to the table. Not because of anything you've done. Before you committed your first sin, he loved you. Before you even existed, he loved you. Before he hung the stars in the sky, he loved you. God the Son has been pursuing you always. And to what end? Why did the Son do this? He told us in this chapter. He pursued us. He's pursuing us now so that they may be with me where I am. If you belong to Christ, you will be with him forever because he's been going after you forever. You will be with him for eternity, bathing in the unsearchable, unchartable, unparalleled glories of Christ Jesus in complete and paradoxically ever-increasing joy. There is nothing comparable in the universe. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you're a believer, you're invited to partake in communion. And I would say that as you take the bread and as you take the juice, reflect on what we've talked about today. Consider the eternality of the, the, the Son, the living God, how he took flesh and was consumed by the darkness of this world and broken in order that we might be with him forever. Seek to have that reality driven into your heart in communion and in worship. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word and for scripture and for the fact that you care so much for us that you've protected and guided the canonization and the allocation of all that you want us to know about you throughout history into this book. And we read it. And when your Holy Spirit goes to work, we can see the glory of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. And so I'm praying right now, Father God, that as we pray, as we worship, as we spend time with you for the next few minutes, enjoying your presence, enjoying the fellowship of, of your children, that you would so compel us to love you, to long for you, to desire you, that we would be drawn back to this book to search for its glories, that we would be addicted to knowing more about our King and our Savior. Father, I pray that we would, in this moment of worship, be intoxicated with just the simple fact that, that you've always existed, that God the Son has always existed, and that in his eternality, he's always had his heart set on his people, and that our faith, our love for him, is objective evidence that we are in that group and that he's always loved us and always pursued us. And so I pray right now, Father, that we would be so grateful, so filled with awe 
so filled with just joy over the splendor of your foreverness. And I ask that you'd come with us in the name of Jesus Christ. Be with us. Amen.